This is the Danger Close Podcast. Beyond the Books with me, Jack Carr. Welcome to the Danger Close Podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. This is a best of episode featuring authors and writing advice. This is conversations with novelists, storytellers, and their advice to writers everywhere. Enjoy. Robert McKee. Robert is an author, lecturer, and story consultant who has dedicated the last 30 years to educating and mentoring writers through his story seminars. He is also the author of the books Story, Character, Storynomics, Dialogue, and his latest, Action. Here's Robert. I've heard you say that, uh, that writing and writers are essential to an honorable life as individuals and as a society. And I've heard you make impassioned pleas to writers to be brave, uh, write their truth. Uh, what do you mean by that, write your truth? And what is truth in story? Well, that's a subject for a big discussion. And a lot of <laughs> <laughs> got to take the I, seminar. If anybody I, wants to know the answer, they need to take I, the seminar. Excuse me. I differentiate between fact and truth. Um, uh, fact is what happened. What? Uh, and uh, science and uh, journalism and all the various ways in which we, you know, investigate uh, the surfaces of life tells us what happened. If you pour this into that, it changes its color and whatever. You know, if you uh, if you uh, you know vote for a certain kind of politician, this is the whatever certain facts. Mm-hmm. But pe- what people often don't understand is that fact is not the truth. Fact is just fact, and fact is relative to point of view. And they, they aren't hard and fast. They're, they are, they happen. There's a certain base, but then they get interpreted. And, uh, and, uh, and so somebody will say, well, if you vote a certain way, you get a certain uh, party in power, and that'll be a disaster for society. Others say, no, if you put that party in power, that'll be the success of society, right? And so they have, uh, and then they say, look what happened. And they go back and they talk about the facts and, 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 but there's a prejudice. And so facts are slippery indeed, because yeah, they happen, but uh, they're interpretable. Fine. So that's fact. And as I said, it's elusive often. Truth is deeper than that. Truth is how and why what happens, happens. Truth is causality. And so when people argue about the facts, you can get to the truth by focusing on, well, you think that 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 fact had X result, right? But let's go deeper underneath that and see how it happened, why it happened, and what it caused in the world 
when it did happen. And so if you dig deep enough underneath the facts with a calm mind, searching for the truth, not just evidence to back up your arguments so that you can win arguments, but if you really want to know the truth and you look for the deep causalities of things and, and, and people calm down and they agree, yeah, that's why that happened. And that's how that happened. Those are the forces that caused the change. And this is the process that, of that change. And then you can get to the truth. And that's what writers do. Writers burrow beneath the facts into the hows and whys the human beings do the things they do. <clears throat> and, and great writing penetrates the surface, goes into the deep psychologies, even unconscious drives of human beings, their conscious choices, right or wrong, whatever, the forces of society, the, the, the flow of power up and down the pyramid of power, the forces of Mother Nature, <clears throat> the forces of, of personal relationships, the way in which family, friends, and lovers <clears throat> cause each other to do the things they do. A writer digs into the inner life, the personal life, the social life, the physical world, trying to discover the truth. And, and a beautifully told story that creates a surface, and then in the turning points exposes the truth. And you suddenly get a rush of insight, and you go, oh my God, no wonder. That's who she really is. That's who he really is. That's what's really going on in that relationship, et cetera. Uh, and so I when I when I autograph books, I always write I write the phrase, write the truth. Hoping that the writer <laughs> uh, that I'm signing that book understands the difference between facts and truth and pursues truth in their writing, uh, knowing, of course, that, again, there's, there's point of view. And so my sense of how and why may be very different than your sense of how and why. But in a democracy, if, you, if enough truth gets out from, from the right and the left and everything in between, uh, intelligent people can experience all these different points of view and then come to their own personal sense of what truth is um, and, uh, and use it, as we say, to equip their life, to live a better life. So, um, and so truth is the hows and whys of things, and that is the subject matter of all fine writing. Wow, amazing. And people that are watching or listening to us right now are coming to the conclusion, uh, that these are more than just books about how to write a screenplay. Uh, there is so much wisdom in these books. Story was your first one. Action is the latest one. Here is dialogue. Here is character right here. These are like the master's degree courses after you read story. Um, but uh, there's a lot more in these 
than just and they obviously writers screenwriters these are these are mandatory but there's a lot more in here well, and, there, uh, there has to be because you, you can't write the story is a metaphor for life right the story says life is like this it's a metaphor for life right all right but you can't teach um story without referencing the source of it all which is life that'd be like trying to teach music without referencing the source of it all sound mm. you can't teach painting without referencing the source of it uh, 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 line and color and shape right the stuff and substance of painting and, and sound and and the, the 12 note scale and chords one has the stuff and substance of, of, of music. And so the stuff and substance of story is, is life. And so, and so it, it, it's, it's not that my books are um, <clears throat> philosophical in any sense. I, I, I try not to be philosophical. I try to say, look, this is how, what human beings are. This is what society is. This is how people make choices. This is how they take action. This is the consequences when they do, right? Mm. So I try to just dig into the stuff of, of living <clears throat> that you're going to take and use as the material for the content of the work of art you're going to create. <clears throat> and, um, and, so, um, and so that's why my books are written the way they are. Because I think it's really important that the writer understand this is not just some sort of of um, uh, formulaic, mm -hmm. you know, something to imitate. Um, this is a, a living form. The way music has a living form, painting has a form, and this is the form of story. And your job is to investigate life and express it in a way no one else has ever seen before. Stephen Pressfield. Stephen Pressfield is a legendary novelist, Hollywood screenwriter, Marine Corps veteran, and author of Gates of Fire. His latest work of historical fiction is called A Man at Arms. His latest nonfiction work on the creative process is called Put Your Ass Where Your Heart Wants to Be. His latest is a memoir titled Government Cheese and is out now. Here's Stephen. So I wanted to ask you one thing, Jack. Yes, yes. But getting yes, back sir. to thrillers and, and the way thrillers operate. I know some books, this is about character. Some books will be, not thrillers, but other types of books, will be all about examining some character. Hamlet, you know, mm. or something that really go in depth to that. And I wanted to ask you, how, how do you, or how can I put this? How much weight do you put in, say, uh, in, in any book, because I know you like you're going to have six books and probably a lot more with James Reese. How much weight do you put into the character of of James Reese as opposed to the action or, or whatever else there is? A lot. Um, so I think that these books are resonating with people, one, because of that authenticity piece, because I take those emotions and the feelings behind certain events that happen downrange or in, in life in general. Uh -huh. And then I take those and apply them to that completely fictional narrative. So although it's a fictional thriller, political thriller, uh, the emotions that the protagonist feels come from a real place. 
So it so it feels like it's real, but not just the protagonist. Well, I'll stay with the protagonist, stay with the main character for a second. Um, we're all on journeys. We're all on that hero's journey. Um, I was introduced to Joseph Campbell very early in in life in 1988 through a series of interviews he did with Bill Moyers on PBS called The Power of Myth. Um, found here with a thousand faces uh, right after that, and of course that resonated. And either I think it was just subliminally I started applying that hero's journey to things that I read, to the things that I saw on mm-hmm. movies or on television, um, and just hey, would would apply that journey to hey, did this work? Why did I not like this movie as much as this one, or why did I not like this book as much <laughs> as this one? Is it because yeah, is it because that main character didn't interact with a mentor along the way? Is mm-hmm. is that why? Is it because mm-hmm. he didn't? Uh, he didn't face that that crucible in the way that he could use either knowledge or a tool that was passed on to him. Did he not come back from where he started and pass on those lessons? Like, were there mi- missing elements? So in life, we're all on this journey. And so my books aren't just James Reese in another situation. And then I pick him up, the exact same character, drop him in another situation in the next book. Pick him up, drop him. He's an evolving character because we're all evolving along our own journeys in life. Um, no one's staying stagnant. Even if you think you are, you're probably not, you're evolving. Time is passing and you are choosing how you're going to spend that time. Um, and so is my character, James Reese. He's along this journey. He's trying to figure out what he is. Is he a killer? Is he a soldier? Is he a hunter? What, what is he in life as he hopefully takes that, what we talked about, those lessons learned Uh previous experiences and applies them going forward as wisdom. Um, so we're all on this journey. So I want the reader to be along on that journey with James Reese as he evolves, as he grows, hopefully, um, but maybe he stumbles a few times, maybe like we all do in life. Um, so that'll all be part of this journey. So it's not just the same character dropped in different scenarios. So I'm very cognizant of that. And then also even just characters that appear for one chapter, like the, the woman you mentioned in, in the yeah. prologue to the, the devil's hand, she needs a background. And, uh, I want people to connect with her on some sort of a, a level. And even though she might never be mentioned again, um, she has to have this background and the connection. She just can't be a person with a name from a country. That's it. No, she has to have something that humanizes her to the reader. Uh, and that includes bad guys as well. They have to, for me anyway, I like uh-huh. to have that background because we all have it in real life. We all have baggage. We all have failures. We all have successes. We all have things that shape us. So even for minor characters um, that just show up for a few paragraphs, I have that background in there. And I think that's important. Let me ask you, Liam, this is bringing me to another question. Uh, the bad guys, the villains. Yes. How much uh, How much thought do you put into the villains? And what, what are the... What do you, what characteristics or what do you need in a villain? What makes a great villain in a thriller? I love writing the villains because uh, for me, for James Reese, it's, um, I won't say easy. I, I never use that term, but uh, I don't have to go and interview, say, a Navy SEAL sniper from Ramadi at the height of the war and then take the answers to whatever questions I ask from him and then have it filtered through whatever biases I have, whatever other research I've done, uh, and then spit that back out into a fictional narrative. So there's all these, like playing that game of secret along the way almost. Um, I can just remember what it was like to go into Ramadi at the height of the war and set up in an abandoned building or go into somebody's house and to do the job. So uh, then I can take that feeling and emotion and apply it directly to that, to that fictional narrative. Now for, let's say, a lobbyist, I don't have any touch points with lobbyists, uh-huh. uh, politicians, no touch points there. It's something uh-huh. that I would never want to do. Uh, I can't imagine. I mean, even though politics is the art of compromise, I just, <laughs> I'm not a very good at that. <laughs> at the compromise piece. Uh, I understand its importance in that realm, but it's not something that I'm attracted to. Um, I was, it, it was in my DNA to be 
uh, a Navy SEAL and to be a writer. Um, it is definitely not in my DNA to be a politician. So I have to put a lot of thought into that. And luckily, there are a lot of real world examples that our politicians give us almost daily uh, with uh-huh. hypocrisy or you know, twisting uh-huh. of laws or just you know, whatever. We have so much material out there that I can draw on. Uh, and same thing on the lobbyist side of the house. I can, there's so many books out there about lobbying and this sort of thing. I can really, I can, uh, I can take real world examples from multiple sources and then morph them into a single character that, uh, that has a trait or two traits that, uh, that I want to explore or exploit, uh, as a, as a novelist. So, uh, so it's so much fun for me to go into the, to, uh, to the bad guys and to develop those uh-huh. bad guys. And then when I'm talking about someone that's not a lobbyist, that's not a politician, but that's a terrorist or something like that. Um, well, I have a background, uh, on the, as far as the history side of the house goes, the personal experience side of the house goes, I've done a lot of reading, obviously on terrorism and insurgencies and counterinsurgencies and warfare that I can weave in to these different characters to develop them and hopefully humanize them a little bit, uh-huh. uh, along the way. So, uh, so I, that, those parts are probably the most, uh, the most fun for me as an author. Will, will you ever do Jack? Will you like, uh, like I will sometimes for my villain, I'll do a file that's just about the villain. And I'll just sort of, it's really, I'll make up a whole life story for him and I'll, you know, kind of, you know, get a real handle on what's, what he's, do you do that kind of stuff too? So what I do is I write at the top of my outline, I have the name and the position. Um, and uh, I do a lot of research into the name to make sure that it's uh, it's accurate for the background in the part of the world. And I look at multiple spellings, and then I'll call someone to ask to confirm and, and, uh-huh. and all that sort of thing. Um, but I won't have the full background attached because I don't quite know it yet. Um, I kind of, I know exactly, I know exactly, not exactly. I know pretty much where they're from, what their point, uh, the point of them being in the novel is. So that's, that's there. But then I get to know that character through his or her interaction with other characters as I write. Uh, so as I write, particularly the dialogue I found, uh-huh. I didn't expect this going in. I get to know the personalities of these characters through the dialogue. And as they talk, their personalities come out. And then I jive back into that research to more fully develop those characters and that background to support that personality that's come out as I've created this dialogue with other characters. So that's kind of what I found uh, thus far anyway. And that's just, that just came about naturally. Ah, that's really interesting to me, Jack, because I, I sort of do the same thing. And you're talking about really, you're sort of discovering the character almost as the camera is rolling, so to yep. speak, right? Yep. Just like if we meet somebody for the first time and you're talking to them or you're, uh, you're running into someone that you, and it's all character dependent, but maybe you've met a few times or maybe it's an old friend. So there's different ways that, that you're going to interact with those people based on your background, their background, uh, what you need them to do to move the story forward. Uh, so all those things help develop those characters more fully. And I really enjoy that huh. part of it. Let me go back to the protagonist for a second. Yeah, yes. And the, char- the character of the protagonist of, mm-hmm. of James Reese in your case. Um, now, there are a lot of ways as a novelist where you can kind of reveal character, right? You could do an interior monologue, mm-hmm. right? You could have James, you know, talking about this and that. and and uh, Which is different than a screenplay, as you know. Uh, yeah. I've, I've learned a lot about this over the last year working on these the scripts for the Amazon series. So very yeah. different, which is which is. So much yeah, fun for that's me really interesting, that isn't it? Because yeah. you can only use what they say or what they do. You right. really can't get into that voiceover is really like yep. a no-no. Um, but is there a 
a, a way that you will reveal James Reese's character to the to the reader? Or are there ways that you deliberately say, I'm not going to do that? Like, I'm not going to have an extended interior monologue or or do you? Nope. It's what comes, it's what comes naturally. Um, uh -huh. so I don't start off with, Hey, I'm not going to do this, but I definitely start off with, uh, Hey, I'm going to do this. If that makes mm -hmm. sense. So I'm going to have him question certain things. I'm going to have, let's say, uh, Katie, uh, question him about something or have her think about something that he said, or look, notice something that he does and have her question it. So there's all sorts of ways to develop those characters, whether it's from the person's point of view or from someone else's point of view, observing them, which is probably even more, more powerful way to, to do it, I think, or thus far it has been anyway. Uh, and there's a few different points where I want to do that throughout each story, knowing that a reader um, might miss it if I just throw it in once. Uh, and I found uh -huh. that out from the first novel, the, 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 my editor had very few edits. For, for all the novels thus far. And I give you credit for that because of that yellow sticky that I had that brought everything back to that theme <laughs> of revenge. And the second book, everything brought back to that theme of redemption. Third book, everything that brought back to the dark side of man. Um, so as I was writing, whether it was a paragraph, a sentence, a chapter, they all had to somehow directly or more importantly, indirectly tie back to those themes. Um, and so there was very, there were very few few edits. Um, ah. but, uh, but one, but one of the edits that was in there, um, was, uh, was about that very thing was about, Hey, you've been involved with this book, um, for the last year and a half. Um, the reader's reading it once they're reading it for the first time. So right. what, you know, you think you're giving something away, <laughs> right, right? One right. sense, one word that's hidden in there, once all these other words, uh, and you think that by dropping that one in there that you've, You've blown it. You've given it away. You want to give a hint as from what's to come, but not give it away, perhaps, so that when the reader gets to the end, they they go like, "Oh, now I remember what that in chapter seven, yeah, and, yeah, uh, when the author wrote this, or the character said this, or this person did this." Um, and so my editor said, "You know, but the reader doesn't." So you need to add a couple other hints. Yeah, you need to add a couple other hints in here. And I thought, oh my gosh, it's going to totally give it away. Uh, and it uh, and it doesn't. I mean, a few people figure some things out, but not everybody. The, the yeah. vast majority do not. Um, so uh, so yeah, so I've, I've discovered that early on that I don't need to worry too much about um, ruining the surprise if there's a surprise, if there's a twist, um, if there's something that I don't want to reveal until a certain part of the novel. Um, but I want to hint at it that uh, that I don't have to be overly concerned that I've given it away too early. When, when you, Jack, when you've been now having working on the Amazon series and sort of being a screenwriter, do you do the thing with the index cards, the three by five cards on the wall? I don't, you know, I know there's programs for it now where you can, you know, move things around on your, on your computer, but no, I don't, I don't have that yet. Um, but I uh, copy and paste, uh, uh, and I had a program uh, called Scrivener for the third book. And I thought that I would use that forever. Um, and I have no explanation as to why I did not continue to use that. It is set up kind of like Microsoft Word, but you can drag research into chapters. So you uh -huh. don't remember the website you went to. You don't uh -huh. remember, oh, where's that photo that I wanted to reference for this chapter to describe this church or whatever it is. You drag and drop it in uh, and it's there in a research file attached to each chapter. And then if you want to move, if you're like, hey, you know what, chapter four should really be chapter nine. Uh, and you can just drag it and drop it back in instead of having to copy yeah, and yeah, paste, yeah. and then, you know, and then go back. Cause I'm always worried if I cut that I'm going to lose it. So copy and then paste like you have to do in word this, you could just drag and drop it. And it's all constantly backing up. And I thought I was going to use it forever, but 
for some reason for this, for book four, for Devil's Hand, I just started in Word and just kept it. And probably because there's so many things going on. Kids were in the house for COVID. It was chaos, so I just never got a chance to get organized. But uh, but it really helped on book three to be able to use Scrivener and uh, and to drag and drop chapters and to organize things. But even for this one, book five, I'm, st- I'm sticking with with Word uh, this time around as well. Ah. Well, I, it's, you're a real instinctive writer, Jack, you know, I think I'm kind of the same way. It's sort of like, I get to the point where I say, just write the fucking thing, you know? <laughs> well, just, you have to get to that point now, but now with deadlines, you know, there's no yeah. messing around. <laughs> you know? Brad Thor. Brad is a number one New York Times bestselling author whose thrillers have received international critical acclaim. His stories feature a character named Scott Harvath, an ex-Navy SEAL and Secret Service agent who finds himself embroiled in the world of international espionage and counterterrorism. His latest thriller is Rising Tiger. Here's Brad. Well, you told me one thing that helped so much, uh, and you said, give yourself permission to write a bad chapter. And for whatever reason, that, like, that freed me up from this worry of, hey, what if this chapter is not good enough as you're going along, and to have that be okay. Like it was fu- if, if it's not good, hey, you know what? You can edit. It's not like you're on the battlefield making a decision. And if you make a bad one, people are going to die. You can sleep on it. You can come back the next day. You can't edit what hasn't been written. And that actually that, um, you know, it's it's funny, the similarities between you and me as far as, you know, I had family in Coronado. You obviously spent a ton of time down there with the SEAL teams. I ended up in Park City for eight years. My kids were born just down in Salt Lake. Um when we moved from Park City to Chicago, we my wife was the doc for the U.S. ski team, and she had a chance to go back and be a doc for the Bulls and the White Sox in Chicago, and we wanted to be closer to our families in the Midwest, so we moved back, and I moved into a house, see, you're going through a move now, that the renovations weren't complete, and I was writing this intense book, I was writing Takedown at the time, and I was having a lot of writer's block, and that piece of advice I gave you, it was the first time I'd ever had any writer's block, it was just so much pressure and so many things going on. And I found that piece of advice in people who know writing quotes will know who said it, but it was a, I believe it was a, a woman who's an author who said, give yourself permission to write a shitty first draft. Mm-hmm. And uh, that can be, you know, you can break that down to just a crummy chapter because you're right. You can come back to it the next day, but you can't edit what hasn't been written. So uh, there's that other thing that said, if the, if the tap's not open, the water don't flow. Right. So you got to sit down at your desk and open the tap. Oh yeah. And whatever that gave me that, that gave me this, uh, this freedom to sit down and write it lifted a huge weight off my shoulders as I was going forward. So hearing that from you was, uh, helped me so much along this path. So I try to pass that on to to other people when they ask me about advice. And, uh, and also what was great when I was coming in is that I didn't have a Facebook account. I didn't have an Instagram account. I didn't have, uh, I didn't have any of that sort of thing yet as a distraction. Because I was still in I mean, the as a SEAL, you don't set this up. You don't do that as a SEAL. Say, <laughs> they might hey, now. They might now in right. third phase. It's possible. It's possible. Along with the writing classes and the, you know, the, the, the interview technique courses and that sort of thing. But, uh, but yeah, back then. Look at this guy was, I caught planting a bomb next to the side of the road. He's giving him noogies <laughs> on your Instagram. Quick, yeah, quick. Quick, get a selfie. Uh, yeah, document it. But it's so different today that I think people would be thinking about that sort of thing a lot more. Uh, whereas I just had to think about the book. And uh, I think in that I'll call, you also told me that, hey, for nonfiction, you, you, do, you, uh, you can sell a chapter, you can sell an idea, you know, that sort of thing. For fiction, it has to be done. And so when I talk to people today, that's what I tell them. Hey, get it done. Don't worry about marketing. Don't worry about a website. Don't worry about any of that thing. Get it 
to be the best that it can possibly be. Uh, and then move on to that next stage and find that agent, find that publisher, whatever you're going to do from there, but get it done. And that's the other thing you told me when I called you back a year later, this was the best part because I was done. Like, whew, made, I made my time. I made my, made my, my first deadline. Uh, it's a, uh, like the day before I called you, boom, it's done, Brad. And then uh, you said, hey, is it as good as you can possibly make it? And I said, well, I could probably go back and read it a couple of times, <laughs> maybe edit it a little bit. And uh, you said, okay, call me back when it is as good as you can possibly make it. So I spent the rest of that summer, uh, late spring through the summer to the fall, getting it as good as I could possibly be. I got to that point where if I worked on it for another 40 years, it would get better by a degree. Nobody and noticed the difference. Yeah, exactly. So, cause you could do that. People could keep doing that forever and making it better. And yeah, they probably would make their manuscript better if they spent another 40, 50, 60 years on it, but by a degree, and then you're never getting published. Uh, so you got to get it out there and get it to that point where you're, you're comfortable and you are happy with it. And then, and then I called you back and said, it's as good as I could possibly make it. And you said, all right, let's do this. I'll let Emily know it's coming. And, uh, off we went to the races. It's the key. Um, so I had to, I had a couple of meals when I go to Minneapolis to do a book signing or whatever, I get together with Vince Flynn. And I asked him if he would ever go back and like take a book after it was published and want to take another crack at it. He said, you know, there gets to be a point where it is like a degree that you can drive yourself crazy because you can find 10 different ways to rework the opening sentence. And it just keeps mm -hmm. going, going, going. And he said, you know, if, if you're batting such that you're about to be inducted into the Hall of Fame, why would you start messing with your swing? That was his other thing, too, is, you know, you don't necessarily need to change it up. I don't know how much I agree with that. That that was intriguing for me, particularly when I was a younger writer, this idea of not trying to improve your swing if you know you're going to the Hall of Fame, because I think writing is a craft where you can always get better. And so when I'm not writing or researching a book, which is most of the time, I'm reading books about writing. I'm constantly trying to get better uh, because I think this is a this is one of those businesses where the more you read the different kinds of things you read, the better you get as an author. I, I You cannot be even a halfway decent author without being a voracious reader. Oh, yeah, that was it. That was what gave me that essentially that master's degree, or that Ph.D., in the, in the thriller genre, what was reading these things growing up was having that mother who's a librarian and growing up surrounded by books and a love of reading and knowing I wanted to go in the military. So finding everything I could on the nonfiction side, even when I was seven, eight, nine years old. Uh, and then where's that next step? Where do you go? Oh, well, you go to books by guys like Tom Clancy, by Nelson mm -hmm. DeMille, by AJ Quinnell, by JC Pollock, by Michael, Mark Olden, guys who had protagonists with backgrounds that I wanted to have in real life one day. So I'm thinking, oh, Nelson DeBille must have done some research on these guys. And, uh, oh. and it says here in the background here that he was in the army for a few years. Oh, great. So that became some of my, my research and inspiration to further go down my path. But it also gave me this, this PhD in the thriller genre, which was, uh, which was amazing. And I think it would be different if you just woke up one day and decided to, hey, I'm going to try this writer thing out. I'm going to go back and read David Morrell, Brotherhood of the Rose from back mm -hmm. in the early 80s. And through this lens of everything that has transpired over a lifetime now and all the biases and filters and all the rest of it. So I feel very fortunate that I grew up reading uh, in the genre and studying the genre, even though I didn't realize I was studying it, I was just enjoying it. But, uh, but that, uh, that, that certainly is, yeah, the most helpful part of being a writer is being a reader first. And that's what Stephen King says, is that you should write what you love to read because that's where your passion is. And I've always gone that extra step and used the term PhD. You actually have a PhD in the genre because if you've been reading your whole life there, you know, particularly with authors that have 
uh, repeat characters, why books really worked for them. Or maybe you got to their seventh book and it was a clunker, but you love the first six. You know what he did different on the seventh. And so you can avoid what that author did. You can learn from that. So you really do. I mean, PhD is a great way to, to explain it. You really do develop a PhD in the genre if you are a voracious, voracious reader in the genre. Yep. No, exactly. And like with anything in life, we always want to get better. We always want to evolve. Uh, in the SEAL teams, I didn't get to a certain point and be like, oh, look, I'm good. I've graduated SEAL qualification training. I'm good now. No, it's constant learning, constant adaptation, constant evolution. And, uh, and speaking of evolution from, from your, your, from Lions of Lucerne up through today, how has your process evolved or, or how has it changed for the, uh, to become more effective, more efficient, or how has that evolved over the years now that you're on your 21st novel, the 20th that's, uh, that, uh, features Scott, Hart, right. of course, but, yep. uh, 21 novels over, uh, uh, over the course of these years, what has evolved over time as far as process? Uh, process it definitely technical uh, knowledge has improved. I mean, I, it's really funny to get somebody who comes across like a first edition of Lines of Lucerne, uh, which was published uh, months after the 9 11 attacks, and then wants to send me an email telling me about technical things I got wrong. I'm like, thank you, sir <laughs> or madam. First book, yeah, yeah no, yeah. believe me, I have, uh, I have. Uh, it, broaden my knowledge of all sorts of things since then. So the neat thing is with this stuff is that there are certain things that haven't changed, whether it's tradecraft, whether it's things that happen in the diplomatic world, there's always going to be these power struggles, these power dynamics, uh, people who, uh, yeah, human nature doesn't change. And so that's kind of an interesting, consistent thing through throughout the novels. Uh, early on, I got uh, two big, huge pieces of fan mail right off the bat from both sides of the political aisle. One was from Newt Gingrich, who said, I really nailed the threats to America and America's enemies. And then one was a uh, had been a cabinet member in the Carter administration who said, I nailed Washington, D.C. insider politics like nobody else. And I just took man's worst nature and dropped it into D.C. Yeah. and didn't, you know, hoping it wasn't that bad. And apparently it is that bad. But um, <laughs> process worse. Yeah, it could be worse. I mean, yeah, that's <laughs> true. So process wise, what I always I always look at books as its show and its business. OK, so we're competing with Netflix. We're competing with, you know, uh, the Internet. The Internet wasn't as big of a thing when I was when I was starting out. It was really ramping up. But so there's a lot of things that are competing for people's time. And I always tell people I don't work for Simon and Schuster. I work for the readers. They're my employers. When they go to Amazon or Goodreads and leave X amount of stars, that's my annual performance review. And I really want to make them happy. Uh, so when I, my process has changed in that, I think my writing's gotten tighter, short, crisp, cinematic, uh, chapters. Uh, I, you know, if you go back and read a book like Lions of Lucerne, it's, it's a fun, fast read, but there's probably six or seven different storylines going through there. And uh, you know, that it all come together and tie up at the end. And that's changed for me. I mean, I saw what Patterson was doing and it's, it's smart to look at success. That was always a Tony Robbins thing that if you sow the same seeds, you'll reap the same rewards, but you'd be silly not to look at people who are successful, particularly more successful than you at any point in your career in a genre and see what can you take from them? That'll make your writing more commercial, commercial, more successful. Let's put it that way. So my process, I've tried to streamline stuff to really make it so it's impossible for somebody to put down the book. I never want to give them a point where they're going to put it down and maybe not come back to it. So process wise, that's probably the biggest 
thing. But I've looked into, and you've got this with James Reese. One of the one of the challenges with writing a serial character is you don't want James Bond to be any different at the end of the movie. You don't want Indiana Jones to be any different at the end of the movie. You don't want him sitting around holding hands, talking about their feelings, drinking <laughs> constant comedy. You don't want that. But you do want to reveal a little bit more each time to the reader. So they feel they understand your protagonist a little bit more. So that became part of my process over the years is how do I reveal a little bit more? So my character, Harvath, grew up on Coronado because his dad was a SEAL. So what was it like when his dad wasn't downrange, when his dad was home? What did they do together? Did they go into San Diego. Was there a particular movie that got played in downtown San Diego? And they'd go and see it seven or eight times. And how did that impact Harvath's? Uh, development and his view of the world. So that's the kind of stuff over the years I've I've worked into the into the books and the characters. Yeah, but that's something else you told me when we first talked. You said make every chapter as good as the first. And uh, but then you also said, but don't get too hung up on it. Uh, so so I love I, I love that. I, I think about that every day as I'm as I'm writing. Like, how am I ending this uh, to make the person want to go to that next chapter? And then how am I ending the whole book? Make, giving enough resolution where they've invested this time, whether they're listening or they're reading, uh, that they they feel they got that resolution from spending that time and investing it with the character and with me and trusting me with that time. Uh, but then I still still want the next book. Still leave that one little bit that just wants that next book. So and that's resolution. Smart. That's smart. And the time is the time is critical. And I'm glad you said time, because this is something that I talk about all the time in podcasts and when I'm at writers conferences and stuff. Someone can go out and make another $15, $25, whatever format they're buying in. They can go out and make more money. The one thing that they cannot do after taking a flyer on your book is they can't make more time. So it is incumbent upon you to give them the absolute best you're capable of because the time that you're asking them to trust you with is time they could have spent with their families, working on their business, working on another hobby, reading someone else. So if you always respect the reader's time, if you make it worth their while to read that Brad Thor or Jack Carr book or listen to it if it's an audiobook, then you've really honored your commitment to them. If they walk away wanting to read the next one, then that's icing on the cake. But it's really important. That's that's the big thing with my you know, Midwestern Marine Corps dad is that you show up every day on the job like it's your first day and you never forget that if you don't work your ass off, it could be your last. Mark Graney. Mark is the creator of the Gray Man series, the first book in the series was recently turned into a Netflix hit film starring Ryan Gosling and Chris Evans. Mark's new standalone thriller, Armored, tells the story of a group of American security contractors who must fight for their lives against drug cartels in the mountainous terrain of Mexico. Here's Mark. What are the things that you've noticed publishing-wise, different trends in publishing, changes in publishing um, with audio, with ebook, with hardcover, obviously uh, with what you did with Armored uh, is amazing and different. Um, things getting adapted now, not just to movies, obviously streaming services and series and all that sort of a thing. Um, when you look back at that over over a decade now that you've spent in, in publishing, um, does anything stand out to you? Uh, as uh, uh, as a bit, as a, a large change or a surprise or uh, yeah. a pleasant surprise, unpleasant surprise. Like, what do you when you look back at that time frame? What, do you, what are your thoughts? Well, um, as far as pleasant surprises, I I think people love stories, and um, not that I'm surprised people love stories, but you know, there's so many other things that that are vying for people's attention. <clears throat> Excuse me, it's COVID. I, I t- that was my first cough the whole time. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> Oh, man. How do you feel, by the way? Like, is it, do you feel? I, no, I, I, I'm okay. I mean, it's just like a bad allergy. Um, but, um, but yeah, th- that, uh, 
you know, people respond to stories, as you said, like the streaming services, and there's, there's a lot more opportunity for, for stories than there were before. Um, that said, there's more people doing it. I mean, obviously the main thing that's changed since I began was really sort of Amazon publishing and, and print on demand and that sort of stuff, because I got my, I had my book deal in 2008 and that stuff didn't really come around in full force until maybe 2010 or 2011. Yeah. So I, I felt like I was a dinosaur in the industry, like a year and a half after yeah. I got published or whatever, because people would ask me for advice about self-publishing. And I'm like, well, I can't really give you advice. I could tell you, I probably would have done it, you know, with one of my earlier books. Um, if, if it had been a viable thing, because I believed in the books, yeah. but now having a few years into it, I look back and none of those books were, were ready. Um, I, my agent said, you know, he read some of my stuff and he's like, this isn't ready. You're a very good writer, write something else. And then he read that and he's like, almost there, not quite write something else. And, you know, that's obviously infuriating. And anybody that says, you know, I've spent three or four years doing this and nothing's come of it. Um, you know, I know that's frustrating, but you know, a, a guy that has been at it as long as I am looks back at that and goes, those are the best years of your life. You know, that is, you know, like you're developing and you don't even know it. You mm -hmm. feel like you're falling on your face, but you're not, you're, you're a better writer at the end of it. So, um, that kind of instant gratitude, uh, you know, gratification of, of self-publishing, I think has probably hurt some authors that, that, you know, could have been uh, you know, bigger or better. That's not to say that I think a self-published novel is, is, is not as good mm -hmm. because I don't feel that way at all. In fact, I love some of the stuff that I haven't had published and, and, you know, if I went back and tweaked it, I, I think I could get it published. So there's, there's obviously, you know, a lot of uh, self-pub authors that are doing great and had put out incredible quality and, and it's a different way to, to do it. And um, if they can find a way to get that, um, you know, to get the exposure that they need yeah. and, and, and not have that take away from their writing time. I mean, I see some people that are just marketing themselves and are yeah. um, marketing their book. And I'm like, gosh, you know, nothing has sold more books for me more than writing another good book, you know, and, and it's like, there's, there's really nothing else. So um, I, that's a, a, it's a positive trend that people, that there is such an appetite for all these types of stories um, you know, and the negative side of it is I, I do think, you know, quality has been watered down. Um, it's still out there, but I bet you there's a lot of incredible writers who are self-published who just need someone to know about them. <laughs> and, it, yeah. and it's so hard to, uh, you know, to, to jump out of that crowd and, right. and be seen. Um, and, you know, who, who knows what we're missing out, you know, some, right. some really great writing out there just because they're just in this slush of, of, you know, tens of thousands of books. There's a guy putting out books called Gray Man and Amazon lets him do it. And I, I, he, I've read just a, like a little sample of it. And there's, there's no way he's a native English speaker. Uh, if, if he is, then he probably should go back to about fourth grade or whatever and, wow. and, and take English again. Okay. Um, but it's, but it's, yeah, it's, Amazon doesn't care, you know? And, huh. and um, yeah. Cause he doesn't so have it, the, the out there. So that's like, <laughs> But I guess I think, titles, you're, you're not, what, can you I'm not trademark a title or something? I forget. He doesn't the use, I mean, he doesn't use my name. Um, yeah. And, I, and, I, and I, I think his character is called the gray man or they're called gray man novels or something like that. But I haven't looked at it in a couple of years. People yeah. used to send it to me and said, that's not to even look doing? at it. I bet there's, they yeah, sold like and, one. 
you know? Yeah, exa- exactly. And it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm bringing more attention to him now. Yeah, than exactly. Had. We'll edit that out. Yeah, <laughs> no, it's fine. I mean, there's only one gray man more. right here. Yeah. yeah. If, if you want to, if you all want to these. read his book, then go for it. But, <laughs> Boom. Yeah. All these ones right here. That's pretty yeah. wild. That is interesting, yeah. man. Wild. Take on the holiday season with the help of Navy Federal Credit Union. When you use the Navy Federal Cash Rewards Card, you can earn up to 1.75% cash back on all purchases. You can redeem your rewards as soon as you earn them. And using the Navy Federal mobile app makes redeeming easier than ever. Enjoy the rewards of cash back without any annual fee, balance transfer, or foreign transaction fees. There are no limitations on rewards and they never expire while your account is open. Learn how you can get cheer to last all year with the cash rewards card at NavyFederal.org. Our members are the mission. Insured by NCUA, rates are variable and range between 12.65% and 18% APR based on credit worthiness. ATM fees for cash advances are up to $1 at non-Navy Federal ATMs, Message and data rates may apply. Visit NavyFederal.org for more information. David Morrell. David is a literary legend. He introduced the world to Rambo back in 1972 in his debut thriller, First Blood. He went on to write dozens of novels, including The Brotherhood of the Rose, Fraternity of the Stone, League of Night and Fog, Testament, Blood Oath, Last Reveille, The Fifth Profession, and scores of others. He captures and passes along advice from his decades of writing experience in his book, The Successful Novelists. Here's David. We had a few things also that happened in there in the, the, the late 60s, early 70s. Uh, we had the Kent State shooting that influenced you, riots yes. at the Democratic Convention in Chicago. Yes. Uh, and then there was an incident in Pennsylvania in 1966, yes. a manhunt that became mm-hmm. known as the Shade Gap Incident. Um, how did yes. that play into to, to this. Oh, a big, a big deal. Um, because that had happened a little bit before my wife and I arrived in Pennsylvania. Penn State's in the center of Pennsylvania in a mountain valley, uh, not like your mountains, they're my mountains, uh, but you know, Eastern mountains, maybe 5,000 mm-hmm. feet tall, maybe, but it's a mountain valley. Nonetheless, they call happy Valley and Penn state is there. It's very, very isolated in its way. Although it's, it's changed a little bit now. And I might've been 65, but it was shortly before we'd arrived. And a mountain man, a a real mountain man, who I, you know, I guess, you know, living, I I don't know how he was surviving up there, but he abducted a young woman and took her back up there. And somehow people knew what had happened. So at that time, the largest manhunt in Pennsylvania history occurred where um, police and, and uh, National Guard and all kinds of others, there were hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people scouring um, the, the countryside and it, it didn't end well for him. Mm. Uh, but I remember reading about it and when uh, the plot for First Blood occurred and you and I have talked about um, Joseph Campbell mm. and the hero with a thousand faces, which I know, no, it influenced you as much as much as it did me and his analysis of you can't follow this like a blueprint but it helps understand mm-hmm. stories his analysis of the structure of mythic mythic stories 
And 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 uh, Campbell had a, a an idea that stories, the three act structure, could be a little bit like youth, middle age, and old age, and the different perspectives you have, or what happens in, in, in many lives is you grew up in a place, you go off and experience life, and then you come back to that place to discover it wasn't at all what you thought it was in your memory. So First Blood has a three-act structure, which is the town, the mountain, and the town. And, you know, separation, initiation, and return is, is how uh, uh, Joseph Campbell explains it. And uh, the... So I had to have, I'm thinking, you know, how's this going to work? And the shade gap incident then became, you know, sort of the model mm. that I knew in real life this could happen. Mm -hmm. And I knew, you know, there were stories about groups, you know, you know, bumping into each other and the confusion and all of that. So I, I knew there was a plenty of oppor believable opportunity for um, the kind of conflict that I would have in in the novel, so that was that was a a, a really important um, thing for me, and and uh, I, uh, uh, I, I, for all I know, it still is the most you know the biggest manhunt in Pennsylvania history. Interesting. And then the uh, the name Rambo. I love the story of where it came from because now we have uh, this character uh, internationally known in thriller genre along with tarzan <laughs> james bond uh harry potter yeah. sherlock holmes rambo and you're writing the story at what point <laughs> in the narrative do you finally figure out the name and did you have a placeholder in there before or was it just a couple x's how did you uh well do that? It, it was it was blanks i knew i wanted uh i didn't want him to have a first name uh the the movie adds the first name but it's the logical name in the movie in a sense all return all return veterans are when johnny, johnny comes marching home he's johnny i mean that's a given um so if they wanted to do that fine and that's and they wanted to soften the movie wanted to soften the characters so much so give a name a first name but not in uh the book i wanted one name and 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 you know relentless force in it and i couldn't think of it uh, and I'm writing the book and uh, we, my wife and I were living in a one bedroom, one living room kitchen together, uh, student uh, uh, housing uh, unit. And uh, we, I had my little desk next to our daughter's crib and uh, the bed where my wife and I slept in. So she came back, we had very little money, but Penn State graciously had given me a, a scholarship. Basically, uh, they paid my tuition and gave me a little money uh, so I could afford to live there. And my wife came back and I remember, she, we still talk about this, she, she paid 25 cents. All right, now, how's this for an investment? She paid 25 cents when she and our daughter were, driving somewhere and she saw a roadside apple stand and so she paid 25 and she got a bag of apples now i love to tell this story because it's so this is joseph campbell stuff the apple thing is so mythic and so she comes home with the apples and and i'm you know the genius at work and i have like a blank spot for the guy's name and i have pages and pages with his blank spot for the name and she says, I bought some apples. It's a sat I remember vividly, it's about three o'clock on a Saturday afternoon because my life changed. 
And she said, I bought these apples, pet one. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I'm, you know the genius. Working. Yeah. And she asked me again, and you know how it, it can be. You say, oh, okay, you know, to get rid of somebody, you know, give me the apple. <laughs> so I bit into the apple and all that mythic resonance. And I did what anybody does in that circumstance. This tastes pretty good. What's it called? And she said, uh, Rambo. And I said, what? And she said, it's a Rambo apple. Now, a lot of people don't know about the Rambo apples. In Pennsylvania, in central Pennsylvania, it's a common variety. And when I, you know, I, I love to, to, to extend this. When Johnny Appleseed, uh, John Chapman, went through Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Ohio planting apple orchards, they were Rambo apple trees. It's a Scandinavian uh, 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 variety. And she said, Rambo. And I said, spell it, R-A-M-B-O. And I knew immediately. Now, uh, you know, some folks listening to this will say, oh, well, hell, anybody could do that. Somebody, you know, in Apple and blah, blah, blah. But you know, and I know that if a professional author, nothing goes by you that everything that happens to you, you're thinking, can I use it? <laughs> so uh, somebody who wasn't, who was a civilian, so to speak, um, would have said, oh, that's an interesting name and have gone back saying, why can't I find a name for this character? Uh, but, you know, be, being a, a kind of vacuum cleaner, um, I said, yeah, that was it. And, you know, so 25 cents, um, you know, <laughs> Dividend on the investment. Wow. I mean, incredible. I mean, it's uh, imagine if she hadn't stopped for those apples that day, what you would well, have come up with maybe, or what would have. Well, it, well, uh, yeah, well, Macintosh is always a joke. Somebody says <laughs> it, you know, it don't wasn't do taken it, yet. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't taken yet. Uh, but, you know, th- uh, in any career, and uh, we've not, you know, another time, you know, in your career, I'm sure. Uh, just as in mind, sometimes things happen that are inexplicable, that they happen exactly when they should. And I, you know, I'm a fatalist and, and I tend not to, uh, uh, I think that's probably the wrong word, uh, but I, you know, I guess I embrace chaos theory. I, mm. And I'm, you know, I, so I have trouble believing in it, in a, a pattern, um, but it sometimes things have happened that I have to say, wow. How, how did that occur? Incredible. And the names are so important. And I love how you write about picking names for characters before you're starting the book. So you don't have names that start with the same letter, end with the same letter, sound the same rhyme, all that sort of end in an S, well, like all those sorts of things, the advice that you give, uh, which, which, I, uh, which I do. Um, and sometimes I put placeholders in there because I'm not sure. But then I get yes. to know the character as that name and that yeah. placeholder ends and that's, up the character. It's very hard. And so at the start, I often I go through this that... Uh, um, I, I, um, I have seen, um, books where the names are so similar, um, that I can't imagine why they didn't change them. Um, and, and I'm, um, I'm reading a novel now where two female characters, their names begin, both begin with the same three vowels. Mm beginning with L, they're Italian, beginning with L and ending with A. That's tough. But 
the middle, but you know, it all conflates and I can't keep one straight from the other. Yeah. And, you know, and now minor characters, all right. You know, if you got, got somebody on page five and somebody on 105 and they're walk-ons and they have a similar, not, nobody's going to go crazy about that. But if you have main characters mm-hmm. and they, and their names have this, I try to have uh, one syllable, two syllable, three syllable names. And I try to have them, uh, the major characters all begin with a different first name, a first letter, and end with a different last letter. I mean, it, I mean, it just seems to me academic. It, you know, it's just pretty obvious. But not everybody does that. But I do on my writing page. I have a, on my website. I have a little thing about yeah. doing. Oh no, no, it's fantastic. I put them at the top of my outline. All the names, even if they're placeholders, uh, and just have yeah. them there and there, and then their position, what they where they are, and the, what they're going to do in the story. Um, but I don't know them yet. Uh, unless it's a recurring yeah. character, I get to know them through the dialogue they have with one another, uh, which is one of the, the, the funnest parts for me, uh, the most fun parts for me, just because I don't know them yet. And then they, they emerge as I'm writing their personalities come out as I'm writing them, which I love, but, uh, but there's something else that's interesting. And I, and I, I don't know if I've told you where James Reese comes from. Um, and if I haven't, I'll tell you afterward, um, because I don't, uh, I don't really talk about it, but, uh, yes. but it comes from, uh, uh, it wasn't an intentional, try- this part wasn't intentional because when I tell you the story uh, offline, uh, you'll see, but James Reese, John Rambo, uh, Jack yeah. Reacher, Jack yes. Ryan, that there's yes. something to that JR thing. That, that certainly wasn't <laughs> you know, intentional uh, at all. Uh, Lee, Lee Child said that too. Lee Child once uh, in a, I was on a forum with him and he was talking about this. It's a very odd, uh, uh, somehow, you know, is, is this somehow in the English language archetype? Well, I have no idea, uh, but it is, uh, it, you know, it shows up a lot. Yeah. And that was completely unintentional. And you'll see, cause it's connected to, to do things in my, in my actual life. If you love America, then Black Rifle Coffee Company has you covered for the holidays. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, check out all the gear, merch, apparel, and coffee roasting equipment. Once again, blackriflecoffee.com. I am a member of their exclusive coffee club, and I also get this big bag right here of Silencer Smooth delivered every month. You can go click on your favorite roast and set your schedule for delivery, and then bam, there it is on the front doorstep every single month. It is absolutely awesome. Go to blackriflecoffee.com, veteran-founded, veteran-run. Go check them out, blackriflecoffee.com. Mark Cameron. Mark is a New York Times best-selling author, a retired chief deputy in the U.S. Marshals, a second-degree jiu-jitsu black belt, a certified law enforcement scuba diver, man-tracking instructor, and a member of the Rural Tactical Tracking Unit for the U.S. Marshals District of Alaska. His most recent book, Cold Snap, was released in April. Here's Mark. When do you write your first novel? What, uh, what year is that? And do you just, you write it first and then how long do you sit on it till you find an agent or what was that process like? How did you, how did you go yeah, about spent, getting published? I spent like 23 years when my wife, I tell the story all the time, but I, my, I told my wife I wanted to be in law enforcement and, uh, and uh, a writer. And so that first year of marriage, we didn't, they didn't supply us with guns or ballistic vests. So the first year of marriage, my wife bought me a, an American body armor 
ballistic vest. Wow. I remember the the picture of the armadillo with a bullet bouncing off of it. I, think um, I remember that. Yeah, and they they were you you washed them in the shower like they didn't have a protective cover. You just like scrubbed them off every couple of days because mm-hmm. in Texas they could get pretty ripe and, <laughs> and quite heavy too with a big metal. Okay. Didn't have the soft right. trauma plate, um, so the metal plate that went on the top. So she bought me that, and I think it cost like four hundred bucks. It was yeah. expensive. I mean, our rent payment wasn't four hundred bucks. Oh in wow, nineteen eighty four. But um, she bought me a ballistic vest and a Smith Crone electric typewriter, and oh, so wow. I was writing short stories and essays and really trying to get short fiction published for almost twenty years before I actually got published, and she. You know, I didn't watch a lot of TV, so I was whenever I was traveling, I was constantly writing and mm. just filling in the time. With I had a pro- college professor tell me one time he was a, actually a drama director. He kind of saw my tendency, I think, to waste time talking and jabbing, you know, jabbering with people, and and he took me aside and he said, you know, Mark, you have a lot of potential, but you will never reach that potential if you don't figure out how to use those 15 minute segments that mm-hmm. other everybody else is wasting. Oh, wow. So I just, if we were waiting, if we were deadheading back on a plane, you know, with no prisoners, I'd write in my story. If we were sitting in an airport waiting to catch a plane, I'd write in a story. I constantly had a book with me. And I remember coming home and we had, uh, I'd, I'd sold a short story. I can't remember to who Saturday evening post or, or somebody. And, um, not even that first. Cause I think I, but my wife um, met me at the door with a, and, and this is years of just rejection letters and, you know, gnashing of teeth and weeping because I, you know, I'm wasting my time um, and spending time away from family. As you know, yeah. you've got these family commitments, but if you're going to write something and you have, and, and these were all self-imposed deadlines. Right. And I remember she met me at the door with a rolled up magazine and she, you know, told me I'd gotten published and she swatted me on the butt. Now there's like 700 bucks, which not downplaying 700 bucks, yeah. but not quit your job kind of money. <laughs> swatted me on the butt and said, go write us a new couch. This is working out just fine. Go, oh, you know, go write us a fridge. So we ended up writing, <laughs> writing Westerns. Okay. And I pitched Westerns, what I actually pitched and got picked up on. Uh-huh. And then trans, you know, kind of went from that long story, but I went from Westerns to not getting published for two books, had six books under my belt, and then nobody wanted the other ones. And they, I had a really, really nice page and a half rejection letter from one of the big seven at the time, big six. Mm. Um, very nice. Effusive compliments on my writing, but it's not very commercial. And then at the end, he said, with your job, you need to think about over the top. You need to think about Jason Bourne. You think about... Mm. You know, I'm sure he didn't, he didn't know you yet, but if he would have known you, he would have said, right, like Jack, right? Something like (laughs) Jack Carr, right? So, you know, something that's terrorism and world, um, this is post, post 9-11, you know, world domination, make you, make it bigger. And, uh, and then he actually finished off the, the letter with uh, two sentences that kind of changed the trajectory of my writing career. He said, and anyway, who cares about Alaska and who cares about a bunch of Alaska native kids? Those are not good protagonists. And boy, it made me angry. Yeah. Oh, it made me so angry. This was pre 20 reality shows in Alaska and Alaska. Exactly. Pre yeah. Sarah Palin, pre all of that. So I went back to the drawing board and wrote this super over the top 
what I thought was going to be like a Matt Helm. You know, Jericho Quinn is a, he speaks multiple languages. He's an Air Force OSI agent, which is what my oldest son was at the time. Actually, he was in the academy at the time going into OSI. So I don't even know much about what OSI did, except just what little I'd worked with him. Um, So I just made my main character this motorcycle because I, you know, had a GS adventure at the time or GS at the time and just made this over the top, super good boxer, Air Force Academy, OSI guy with a big gunnery sergeant partner and this voluptuous Cuban Russian working OG, you know, they're all OGAs fighting bad guys thinking this will be a one-off and I can go back to, you know, the real writing. Uh And we've done eight and um, (laughs) two novellas and was able to retire. And that's the Jericho. And actually the Jericho's Jericho Quinn series is what Mark Graney read in order to recommend me to Tom Colgan for the Clancy's. So they've been Jericho Quinn has been very, very good to me. Hey, I love that. So for the ones before that, then did you have an agent or how did, or were you submitting yourself to the, how how did that work? No, I I pitched at a conference and this is what I tell people all the time. Unless they have a, really, unless they have a background, you know, you've got to have that personality. And so pitching at a conference allowed me to go, um, sit down and kind of, and again, I mentioned I wear a hat all the time. And so I tipped my hat to the lady. She was in her late fifties and smiled at her, told my story. And she asked for three chapters and then called me and said, uh, actually she called my, when my, the same day, my father-in-law was dying. So my wife called me and said, my dad's dying. We need to go to Calgary. And Oh, and and called and they want to publish your book. And so I'm like, oh, oh you know, geez. my life's dream, but my right. favorite guy in the world is, is passing away. And so we flew to Calgary, got to see my, my father. I was a World War II vet, British officer. He was 50 when my wife was born. So mm. um, super nice guy. So we got to say goodbye to him, called the, called the editor. She said, well, I can't publish yours right now. Can't get it in, can't get it in the list maybe in a year and a half, but could you pull my fat out of the fire and help me finish a book for another established writer? I said, Mm. absolutely. Whatever, you know? So I, I agreed to finish this book. She FedExed me some, some of the previous ones in the series. These were Westerns by an established writer and uh, read up on those and said, all right, I'm ready to go. And I called and I said, Hey, I need to speak to so-and-so. And the receptionist that the publisher said, she doesn't work here anymore. Oh, and I said, I, well, I'm supposed to be ghosting. I'm supposed to be supposed to be doing this. And they said, sorry, we, oh. we don't know. That's between you and her. Oh, so wow. I was orphaned. And then again, weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, um, and then I got an email from an agent named Robin Rue with Writer's House. She introduced herself and said, and gave me your pages. I like the way you write. I would like to represent you. Hmm. And Robin's been my agent since then no kidding yeah fantastic that's incredible and great lady great agent yeah wow that's so and so that first writers conference then was it like a thriller fest or about your con did no, you do the it one was where, a, it was a western writers of america oh, wow, in great. helena montana wow yeah. and so they did a similar thing where you had multiple agents yeah. in there that you kind of could go and talk to for five minutes at a time type of a thing Yep, exactly. And I practiced and I mean, I, was, I told you I met my wife in drama. So I, and I, I may or may not now when you're, a, when you're a deputy marshal, you carry all the time anyway. So 
So I may or may not have let my jacket swing open a little bit as I sat down to <laughs> my badge and gun showed. There you go. Um, you know, just, I practiced that pitch and as if I was, I looked at it like an op and I think, yeah. and I tell, and I, I've noticed, I think you do that too. In fact, I think we might've even talked about this at, at uh, BoucherCon. You have to look at it like an op. If you're going to pitch to somebody, there's so much online about that person. Make sure you know what they like, what they don't like, and, and not in a creepy way. Right. Just to, to get <laughs> don't to take know it too them. far. Yeah, yeah, don't take it too far. Don't 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 have pictures on yeah, your yeah, wall yeah, yeah. and red line and all that. <laughs> exactly. But at least, but at least know if if uh, it's a good idea to mention your kids, yeah. or you know, or or uh, if they particularly like Alaska, or basically more what to point to, right? Than um, than anything else. So this was a lady that. Uh, had just published a book about the border patrol. Mm. And so we chatted about federal law enforcement and um, yeah, it was, a, and just a super nice lady. So oh, she's great. passed away now, but um, long time in the industry. And, yeah. and I pitched to her and I think three other people. Yeah. So, yeah. It's, those pitches are, they're just a way for you to, you have the kind of personality for instance, that is very personable in person makes you want to be your friend that doesn't always come across not from you, but from anyone, it doesn't mm -hmm. come across in a query letter Yeah, and they get hundreds a day. So those pitches, those thriller fest, voucher yeah. uh, con, those are phenomenal for, for this sort of thing. Yep. I recommend that to people all the time as well oh, that reach too. out. I say, me Hey, too. just go. I know so many people that have, have sat down across from an, an agent and had that, that connection, whatever mm -hmm. that is, but they had to go to, Thriller Fest a few times, BoucherCon a few times. I had to go to more, just anything mm -hmm. like that where you can sit down. And volunteer. You have yeah. to. You got you to put that time in. And uh, and it's worked out for for a lot of people that we that we know. Um, oh, Simon. Simon. Yeah, Jure exactly. Yep. Picked up. Uh, I've met I've met you through Thriller Fest or through BoucherCon. I met Mark Graney through BoucherCon. Um, yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's uh, good stuff. And so is that how Mark uh, initially found you was, was at a conference or became aware of you? Cause he, he did a, a number of the Tom Clancy novels he and then seven. it was time yeah. for him to, 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 to move on. It's a lot of, that's a lot of work. Uh, as you it's know, my, yeah, it's a lot of <laughs> bandwidth. It really is. I'm finishing one up right now. Wow. And, um, it is a lot of bandwidth because I'm a Clancy fan. I've been a Clancy fan forever and you want to be, yeah. um, and and this particular Clancy that I'm working on now is a retro Clancy. Oh, great! Which is kind of that's cool. Absolutely fun. Wow. To write, you know, Berlin in the in wow. 1985, but uh, because that's when I was in law enforcement. That's when I, nice. you know, met a Stasi officer. That's mm. when you know that's you know that's the kind of thing that I remember. Um, you know, the revolvers and no cell phone days. Or right. When they, when oh, that's fantastic. That's great. I can't wait for that one. And, Hardwired <laughs> into your phone, in your car, kind of a thing. That's going to be um, great. Is this your sixth one? Yeah. Which, how, what number this is this? Six. Six. Yeah. Okay. This is number six. Thank you so much to Six Hour for jumping right on board out of the gate to make this podcast possible. Obviously, I am a huge SIG fan, having carried the P226 on every deployment downrange in the SEAL teams. Uh, but Sig was a supporter. They were friends well before uh, I was a New York Times bestselling author, uh, well before I even had an Instagram account or any social media presence whatsoever. So thank you guys 
all so much. Uh, Ron, Tom, Jason, everybody at SIG who gets up every day and continues to crush it and lead the way. SIG is always adapting. They're always at the forefront, whether it is firearms for citizens, whether it's firearms for our military, ammo, suppressors, optics, training, fire control units. They are doing it all, and they are always pushing pushing that envelope and trying to do it better each and every day through innovation and adaptation they crush. So thank you so much for that friendship and support. Uh, it will never be forgotten. Stephen Hunter. Stephen is a Pulitzer Prize winning film critic, the United States Army veteran, and New York Times bestselling author of numerous works of fiction and nonfiction. His upcoming novel, The Bullet Garden, will release in 2023. Here's Stephen Hunter. When we think about state of the nation today, um, and you have all these years of being right there in the newsroom, uh, you have the novels, you have the shooter movie, we have the series on USA. I mean, incredible. You accomplished your life goals. You've inspired a generation of writers um, and journalists, uh, critics. Um, what has changed in the tone or do you pay attention to uh, other novels or uh, or movies uh, as far as following along with popular culture of the time? Because popular culture is a very powerful thing, uh, not just within our borders, but outside to the rest of the world as well. I mean, our most powerful export used to be out of Hollywood to the rest of the world. Um, and now we have this, uh, seems like this self-loathing, this moral vanity that has uh, invaded most of most of media. And, and I wonder if you notice it in other, other novels or if you pay attention to that or in, in films, um, or, or, uh, or do you just keep your head down and keep working? Cause you've done a lot of things. You've had a lot going on. You've had, uh, Basel's war come out. You have targeted, which, uh, by the time this drops, will be out. You have with a bullet garden that's coming out this summer. I think, um, you had a lot going on. So do you pay attention to the shift in culture, popular culture, uh, in through the medium of popular fiction and popular film? I'm certainly aware of it. Um, I actually try and shield myself from it in the sense that I prefer, as I mentioned earlier, the 50s. And that's always, uh, you know, those are, as I say, those are the, those are the old red gods that I still worship. Uh, and uh, I kind of think that uh, to put it crassly, that that's a good career move. Mm. In other words, you know, there's just so much of what is politically correct is banal. And there are so many authors who are so desperate to fit in. And whether they believe this stuff or not, they are they they don't have the leverage, they don't have the market power. They don't have the, uh, you know, they they don't have the courage to to fight it, and so they go along with it, you know. And in a the short run, it's probably uh, profitable. Uh, isn't there some biblical saying, "What profiteth a man to gain the whole world if he loseth his soul?" And so I feel at least I have not loseth my soul. And uh, the books represent me. They represent my beliefs. They are me. 
if you're not okay with that, that's fine. I'm not here to, you know, as far as I know, high school curriculum is, they're still teaching the scarlet letter. They're not teaching <laughs> that. Maybe they're not even teaching the scarlet letter. They're probably teaching some magna from Japan. Well, anyway, we don't need to go there. Anyway, what I'm just trying to say is that I am aware of what's going on. Uh, it does disturb me. It it has to. How could I have written the books that I have and have it not disturb me? Uh, and I will, my part of the fight is to do what I do as well as I can do it for as long as I can do it. And, and that's, I'm not going to be a crusader. I'm not going to give speeches or run for office or write essays or uh, this, that, and the other thing. I'll, I will speak out mainly on the gun issues uh, because those are the ones that are dearest to my heart and let the other issues um, people in, you, you know, infer from my work what my stance on those issues would be. But it's not, you know, I'm a storyteller and I love to tell stories and, and that'll always be what I do first and what I do best. And, and I have to be loyal to that impulse. And that's how I'm loyal to myself and my beliefs. Oh, I love that. I think, you're, I think you're on the, I think you're onto something. Uh, speaking of being onto something. Yeah, your part too, believe me, in both venues, you did your part in the field and now you're doing your part as a, uh, as a writer. Thank you. Okay. So you should be very, Proud of your accomplishments. Let's not get too carried away by little Stevie Hunter from Northfield. Okay? Well, it's uh, <laughs> hey, uh, if if you saw the, the my library and all the the first editions that are in a box out there, it's uh, yeah. I mean, uh, I sincerely appreciate everything you've done, continue to do, and uh, and more importantly, uh, our friendship that just means uh, means the world to me. And you, I mean, you blurbed my first book without without question, uh, and that meant the world to me. Thank you for tuning in to the Danger Close podcast, an Ironclad original presented by Navy Federal Credit Union. Full episodes and links to the books are in the show notes. You can follow me at Jack Carr USA on the social channels, officialjackcar.com. That's the website. You can sign up for the newsletter there and click on shop for the merch. And if you enjoyed these conversations, be sure to leave a five-star rating and review wherever you get your podcasts. Until the next time, take care out there. Stay safe, be strong, keep fighting. My collaboration with KC Cattle Company is out now. Kansas City Cattle Company, veteran-owned and operated. There are two exclusive Jack Carr bundles. One is for the whole family, and that includes their award-winning Wagyu uncured beef hot dogs. And a second bundle option, which is my favorite, includes something special. A massive Wagyu tomahawk steak and a cross tomahawk's branding iron so you'll be able to add the cross tomahawks logo to all of your steaks it's awesome and you can go to officialjackcar.com click on shop to check that out but hurry because they are going fast